Got a good old crowd, good old crowd heading back there. In um, mid-April of 1912, the RMS Titanic, you know, who many of you know about, or you think you know about if you're referring only to the movie, um, sailed from England. And of course, you know that this ship was uh, said to be unsinkable. It was something that was a marvel of engineering at that time. It had the largest of a lot of things. It had many patents related to design and what it had, but uh, what no one could imagine is that it would sink. And it was just uh, halfway or partway into this voyage that it hit an iceberg. And, of course, you know that part of the story. What's very interesting to me, though, is after it hit the iceberg, it was shortly after that that the captain and the ship's engineer who was, on course, on board, they figured out the ship is not going to survive. I mean, the unthinkable, the unsinkable was going to sink, and they knew that. And so the captain gave orders to the stewards, to, to the staff, um, that they needed to begin proceedings on filling the lifeboats so that they could save people from the ship that was going to sink. And he, he gave out the instructions. Um, there was a plan in place. He also gave the order that women and children were to enter the boats, that no men were allowed in the boats at that time. And they started to fill the lifeboats from this sinking ship. But what was amazing is for over an hour, people were hesitant to get into the boats. I mean, I guess maybe part of it was understandable. They had taken a band and put it on the deck to play some soothing music so people would just be relaxed as the ship sank, you know, just like comfortable, you know. Um, there were ladies who didn't want to leave their husbands. Uh, in fact, out of the first five boats, most of them left with less than half of their occupancy. Most of the boats could hold 64 or 65 people. One boat left with 28 people on board because the stewards were begging women and children to get into the lifeboats. Please, will you please get in this lifeboat? Will you please leave him, come to the lifeboat? You, no, please, will you come into the lifeboat? Uh, staff was trying to push people towards the lifeboats. People didn't want to go. They were on this big boat that was unsinkable. It was, it was wonderful. And yet, their lives were in danger. But they didn't want to go on the lifeboats. Right around 1 a.m. in the morning, the, the ship had reached such a tilt that the bow, uh, the water was getting almost up to the name plate of the ship. So there was a significant slant at that time and right around 1 o'clock, things began to change. It went from, I don't want to get on that lifeboat, to a little bit of chaos. Stewards who, to that point, were begging people to get on the lifeboat, after 1 o'clock, some of them had to use pistols to hold men back from getting on the lifeboat. People were jumping from the ship trying to land in a lifeboat on top of people. I mean, it was, it was almost panic. Because at that point, people realized they needed to be saved. They needed salvation from this sinking ship. And so it changed everything. Well, Paul was very similar in his ministry to what the stewards were. The stewards on the ship, they were the ones who went out and they let everyone know, you need to get on the lifeboat. Paul's ministry was very similar. In fact, as he 
traveled around. Ephesus, of course, was one of those uh, towns he went to. He would go in and he would let them know, listen, you're he wouldn't just tell them about salvation. He would have to communicate to them their need for salvation. This was certainly true in the town of Ephesus. Ephesus, who had, had run other individuals out of town. Ephesus, who, one of the seven wonders of the world, was the temple to Diana, steeped in pagan worship, idol worship, uh, a Roman province where you worshipped everything, including Caesar. I mean, um, they had no need for you know, a 90th God on the list. So Paul had to communicate their need for salvation. And what we're getting into in Ephesians chapter 2, page 827 in the Pew Bible, is Paul writing back to that church and reminding them of the message he spoke, reminding them of the truth that he spoke to them when he came in. And, and for you and for me, it's an incredible passage related to our salvation, related to both our need for salvation and also the means of which we gain salvation. So in Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to study verses 1 through 7, and I will, I, will prep, I will let you know that the first three verses are ugly. They're ugly, but, and I'm going to dive right into them. I don't want to hold back, but I want to let you know there's an incredible outcome to this passage. So bear with me as we dive into some of this darkness. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it's, he says, as for you, you were dead. Okay, so now we can see, we're reminded once again, Paul is writing to a church about something he's already taught them. He says, you were dead. Past tense. This is, this is how you used to be, church. Um, it says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Uh, transgressions uh, is a word meaning false steps, your, your incorrect steps, your wrong choices. Uh, sin it means to miss the mark. You know, you, you've made wrong choices. You've also missed the mark in terms of uh, meeting up to God's holiness. And because of that, you were dead. Well, like I said, this is a, a dark passage because I don't think we, we think of ourselves before salvation in terms of being spiritually dead. It's not that we're kind of, you know, well, we were dark and now we're light. Or, I mean, we, we try to make it sound a lot nicer than Paul does in this passage. He says, you were completely dead, meaning unable to do anything. You were not able to do good. You were not able to accomplish anything that would glorify God, you were dead spiritually. This is who you were. And, and, and he goes on. He says, this is what your life looked like in verse 2. He says, in which, it, meaning in the state of death that you were, you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Interesting. Interesting. He, he reminds them of how they used to be. He says some specific things. And again, if you're taking notes, verse 1, you're dead in your transgressions and sins. Verse 2, you followed the world and its ruler. You had a boss. You had something that you were following. Maybe you thought that you were doing it your own way, but you were following the world around you, the way they did things around you, and you also followed the ruler of this world, which is Satan. 
taught many times in Scripture, the ruler of this world is Satan. He says, and you followed him. And you followed the ways. You, you lived your life the same way as those around you following Satan. Pretty abrupt. Pretty in your face. Now, I think there's a contrast a little bit, right? Like in verse 1, he says you're dead, and in verse 2, he says you're following someone. It's like, well, Pastor, that doesn't really match up because if I'm dead, I'm not following someone. There's a way to look at this. Um, Paul is saying when you're dead spiritually, you're dead from God. You know, you, you are dead to God, maybe a way of saying that. The fact that you're able to walk and follow after something else, uh, many people have paralleled this to being a zombie of sorts. You're not really there spiritually, but you are able to follow something, to go after something. That's really the picture that Paul is painting here in reference to our life without Christ, our, our life in sin. He says, you followed this world and you followed the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time and we gratified the cravings of our sinful nature. Gratifying is in verse 3. We gratified our desires. Our intent was to make ourselves feel good. Whatever it took, whatever we needed, whatever... What, it didn't matter if it was something physical or something relational or just something where uh, people are, were gaining acknowledgement or power. Whatever it was, we wanted to feel good. That was the goal of our life. We gratified our desires. And then lastly, in verse 3, we see something else. That like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Verse 3, we're objects of wrath. Objects of wrath, meaning that wrath is the wrath of God, referring to that at some time uh, we have to come under God's judgment. God being the only perfect, holy, righteous, divine creator, he is the only one able to judge. And as I've said before in this congregation, it, God is not a God who wants to judge, but it is impossible to have grace and love without judgment. If there is never a judgment, how can you have grace and freedom from that judgment? If there's never a consequence or a wrath, how can there be love? And so a perfect God is the only one that can do that. And, and Paul reminds him, he says, listen, you were objects of God's wrath. You are going to be recipients in the future of God's wrath. And I don't know about you, but man, verses 1 through 3, this is a little discouraging, Paul. I mean, um, do you got anything else for me? Because so far you've said in our previous life or our life without Christ, we are dead. We followed the world and its ruler. We gratified our desires and we were objects of God's wrath. I'm just not cheered up right now, Paul. I'm just not feeling very cheered up. I, I read one commentator who I agree with, but I think sometimes when something is so extreme, you prefer to quote someone else. At least that's my secret, okay? This commentator said, Listen, what Paul is saying and what other writers in the New Testament are saying is when we compare our lives without Christ to one another, we're really just comparing corpses. Well, I'm, I'm this good or I'm, I'm that good. Well, my life looks at least like that. It doesn't look like that. They're both corpses. 
We're comparing corpses, is what the commentator said. Now, as, as evil and as dark as all that is, it's, I think Paul knew it was necessary because he's about to transition into something that as dark as that is, what he's about to transition to is so much greater and so much brighter. But I want to say something else. And going back to the story, the stewards were not threatening the individuals on board the Titanic. It wasn't like, you horrible people who are about to sink with the Titanic. You, no, they wanted to rescue them. When Paul says this and, and said this to the church at Ephesus and other churches, when he said this, it wasn't in terms of judgment. Like, you, you wicked, yucky people. It was, you need salvation. You need to be saved. It was just like the, the, the workers on the Titanic who were calling to people to please come into the lifeboat and be saved. That's what Paul's doing. It's not like, I'm just going to make people feel as bad as they can feel about their lives. People already feel bad about their lives. Paul's not trying to do that. He just wants them to be aware of their need for salvation. Because why would you get into a lifeboat if the cruise ship you're on, which is the greatest ever built, is not going to sink? They had to become aware of their need. And that's what Paul does in this, these first three verses. He reminds us that we needed salvation. We needed a Savior. In verse 4, we have this amazing phrase, and, and it's, not, it's not quite written perfectly in the NIV, it, 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 and it's not that important. But in verse 4, you see it starts with the word but. You know, so we have three verses of darkness, and then Paul wants to let us know but, and most of your translations will say, but God. And that really is the way it was written in the Greek, but God. The very first words of verse 4, meaning Things are about to change. On the Titanic, it was, there are lifeboats. They didn't have enough lifeboats for everyone on board the Titanic, because why would you need enough lifeboats uh, for a ship that is not going to sink? Also, they felt like lifeboats really cluttered up the deck. So why have as many as you need? But they had salvation. They had something. Even in that darkest hour, there was a way of salvation, and God steps into this darkness with this phrase, but God, and in verse 4, we continue to read this. It says, because of his great love for us, who is rich in mercy, he made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. So the first thing we have in verses 4 through 7 is we have the means of salvation, one, it is by God and because of his love. It's because of his great love that we are offered salvation. But more than that, it is by grace. It is by grace. Grace meaning there's something offered to us that we don't deserve. Now, you could argue that the passengers on board the Titanic deserved a lifeboat. I would, I would give you that. But in terms of salvation for you and for me, it's something we don't deserve because as Paul said, we were dead, incapable of doing any good to earn salvation. We couldn't earn it. 
So it is by God's great love and his grace that we're now given this salvation. And I love verses 5 and 6. There's three verbs in this passage. Three things that because of God's great love, you and I receive. And they're so much greater than the darkness that we had in sin. In Christ, in verse 5, we read this. It says, He makes us alive. He made us alive with Christ. That's good news. That's good news because if we were dead spiritually, dead to God, He has made us alive to Him. Amazing. Wonderful. Not only that, but in verse 6 we read this. And God raised us up with Christ. We're raised up. We're lifted up. We're not down in a pit anymore. We're now lifted out of that. He has raised us up. And then, of course, thirdly, thirdly, he has seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. How awesome is that? How amazing is that? He, he has made us alive. He has raised us up, and he has seated us with him. Let me parallel some of this to you. We have, in verse 1, you have that we are dead to God, dead in our transgressions and sins. But in, in verse 5, he has made us alive. Amazing. Um, we see that we were following the world and its rulers and our own desires before Christ. But now we see that he has raised us up. He has called us to something so much greater. He has enabled us to do things that are greater, living a purpose-filled life, a life that is meaningful, a life that when we close our eyes at night and we go to sleep, we know that we've not just lived out our day, but that our day meant something, that it made a difference. That's what raised us up is. I think lastly, I think the last thing is probably the most precious to me. That I think they're all immensely powerful. But in, in verse 3, we read that we were objects of God's wrath. <clears throat> objects of his wrath. But what does he do? In verse 6, he seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And if we read in verse 7, it says, In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. We go from being objects of God's wrath to objects of the, the riches of his grace. How amazing is salvation for you and for me? How amazing is salvation for you and for me? Salvation today is, this, is what it's been for all eternity. It's, it's God saying, I, I want to give you something. Because of my love, because of my grace, I want to offer you salvation. Salvation is simply admitting that we're in need of salvation. Admitting that we need it. The first thing that the passengers on board the Titanic had to realize is that they needed to be saved. Nothing was going to happen until they realized they needed salvation. Once they realized it, they could move towards it. So admit that you are in need of salvation. Second, believe in Christ's work of redemption or, or his offer of salvation. Basically, believe that Christ was who he said he was, the Son of God, and that he did what he said he would do, which is live a sinless life, die on the cross, and rise again. 
We admit that we need salvation. We believe that Christ did a work of salvation for us. We put our faith in it. We trust in it. And then we just accept it. We just say, God, save me. And we accept it. That's all salvation is. That's all that's required in Scripture is just admitting your need for it, believing in it, and accepting it. That is salvation. And and I know... I know I think one of the biggest hang-ups for, for anyone here today that may say, you know, I haven't really trusted in Jesus Christ as my Savior. I haven't really admitted my own need for salvation. One of the biggest hang-ups is, why would a God do that? Why would God offer salvation to me? Because very often you're like me and you're very aware of the fact that you don't really deserve it. Why would he do that? And that's why what Paul wrote about in verse 7. We already read it once, but I invite you to look at it again. He says, He seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, verse 7, in order that. So this is why he does it. Is that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus meaning that he offers salvation to you and to me because he just wants to love you. He wants to show you his incomparable riches of grace. It's not just the grace of salvation, but it's the grace for you to live each and every day of your life. It's the grace to uh, um, function with the members of your family in a way that you didn't imagine. The way for you to go to work and and operate in a way that you didn't imagine. It's this incomparable grace. It's the same grace that when when you and I realize that we've done something wrong and we go to him, he's so quick to forgive. He's waiting to forgive. To just wrap his arms around us and say, I forgive you. I'm not going to think about it anymore. I love you. That's the incomparable grace of his riches. That's why he offers salvation. It has actually nothing to do with you and me. His offer of salvation to you and to me is completely based in the fact that he is a loving God, full of grace, and he wants a relationship with you and for me. And if you're here this morning and you have made that decision, you just just thank him. Uh, Today, as as Danny comes and, and we just have a time of response, I invite you to thank him. I might ask you to to thank him maybe in a a different way. I think it's very easy for us to say thank you, God, and and that is meaningful. But there are some specific things you can thank him for this morning from this passage. One, God, thank you that you made me alive. Second, thank you that you raised me up. Thirdly, thank you, God, that you have seated me with you and that I have become an object of your grace. But this morning, as, as many of you, I pray, thank the Lord for his salvation and the work of salvation he has done in your life. I want to make an invitation to anyone present who maybe this is just a time where you feel like that maybe God's calling you, that God's leading you to respond to him. As a reminder, salvation is simply admitting your need of salvation, believing that Jesus is the means and the source of salvation and accepting his free gift. This morning, it would mean the world to me to be able to pray with you.
And I can tell you that in this congregation, there is only going to be celebration if this morning you chose to respond in faith and say, God, I'm coming to you and I'm asking you to save me. I would love to pray that prayer with you. And this church would celebrate that decision. So I'm going to ask Danny to just play a song for us. And in this time, I would invite you to thank God for the salvation you have, or maybe for the first time, respond to his offer of salvation 